Welcome. You are listening to the Upper Room Podcast. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit URFellowship.com. Everybody else doing good? Everybody doing good? All right. Happy Sunday. I'm doing really good too. Not to jazz, but uh, it's been a good day. Um, you can grab a Bible or uh, turn one on or whichever one of those things that you do. Turn your phone on to a Bible app or whatever. Open up to Matthew chapter 4. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. So last week we began the Values in the Kingdom sermon series. Uh, this series is going to explore the the core values here at the Upper Room. And if core values sounds a little corporate, um, maybe think of like them as just like what's most important to, to, for our church family. These are the things that the Upper Room Fellowship is, is to be about. Okay? And we are calling the, the Sunday school class that is happening in the sermon series Values in the Kingdom. Because we firmly believe that what we are called to as Jesus followers, as disciples of Jesus Christ is to live in the, the rule and the reign of the power of God and his kingdom in the present. So before we get into these specific values in the coming weeks and months, what I want to do today is I want to talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. I want us to understand more completely the, the kingdom of God so that we can more fully grasp and live out its values. Sound good? Okay, so to start, I just want to read the second half of Matthew chapter 4, the whole thing won't take very long, uh, and it's really cool. So let's start in verse 12, Matthew 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, the light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. It'd be weird to be casting a net into a lake if you weren't fishermen, I suppose. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat, the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Okay, so that is the second half of Matthew chapter 4. Now, I'm guessing that a bunch of us have grown up or were raised in or are very familiar with what I'll call like churchianity. It's the Western cultural form of the Christian faith. And if, if that's you, then these are very familiar stories. right? As kids, we sang songs about being fishers of men. 
We have heard the, the well-known stories of Jesus calling people to follow him and healing the sick people. They're very familiar. And a challenge there is, when you, when you come to a part of the Bible that you're already very familiar with, you're kind of in danger because you think you already know what's happening. And so you're less likely to be expecting to hear anything new. And then maybe some of you who are brand new to following Jesus or you're rediscovering my, what it might mean for you to follow Jesus right now in this season of your life, and you don't, you don't know these stories, and you heard that phrase, I'll make you fish for people, you're like, well, that's catchy. Somebody should write a song about that. Because all this is new to you. So wherever you are, welcome. This is what we do as a community of Jesus, right? We come together and we just come expecting something new. A new word, a new insight for Jesus to become new to us all over again. And so here's what I'd like to do uh, to, to at least try and, and hear this story with new ears and read it with new eyes. I want, I want you to engage your imagination today. Okay? I want you to pretend. Maybe you haven't pretended for a long time, but today that's what we're going to do. Okay? I want you to make believe, pretend that you're a Jewish fisherman or fisherwoman. And you love your people. I mean, you, your family, but, but your people, the family of Abraham. And you, you love the land that you're on. You, you live in your ancestral land. And you have a love for your people. You grew up with the stories and the poetry of the Psalms and the prophets. And the stories about Moses and Joshua and Gideon. And all of the stories take place in this land you live on. And your whole imagination is filled with, with stories of your past and the God of Israel who, who rescued his people and so on. Now, if you're a fisherman or a fisherwoman, you probably live in the region of Nephtali and Zebulun. You recognize those names from the stories we read, yeah? So those are tribal regions around the Sea of Galilee. And you love everything about your land, but you're very aware, you're very aware that all is not well in the world, or with your people whom you love. It's very clear why things are not well in the world. That's because you live in a militarized zone. You live in a region that even though your ancestors have been living here as far back as you can remember, you are living under a military occupation of the Roman Empire. And they've been here for about 70 years, not that long in terms of the history of your people. And you're reminded of their presence daily when the troops make their security rounds on the borders around the Sea of Galilee. And the, the Roman Empire does not care about the history of your land or your people or the God that you give devotion to every day. And you're aware that taxes keep going up. And that your uncle who used to farm a piece of land nearby had to recently sell his land. He couldn't afford to keep it anymore because the taxes keep going up. He's now a debt slave working for a Roman who now owns the orchards that your uncle's great-great-great-grandfather once owned. Things are not well. But you hear a report that there's a, there's a Jewish prophet who's from Nazareth. And he's making the rounds of all these towns around Galilee with this amazing, really amazing message that has everybody talking. And everybody's in anticipation about this guy. He's touring around, and you hear that he's going to be in your synagogue this coming Sabbath. He's going to be teaching. And so you arrive at the synagogue on Friday night, 
And Jesus is there, and you realize that you, you didn't get there early enough because there's already like 300 people there. Only 50 can actually fit in the room. And so you're outside, but you're, you're making out what he's teaching inside. Okay, so, so what do you hear? What do you hear Jesus talking about? This is just an average day for Jesus, if there is such a thing. He's teaching, saying his thing. What do you think you hear him talking about? It's worth asking the question. It's worth paying attention to your answer to the question. Because how you answer that question tells you a lot about how you view Jesus in the present. It actually tells you how you've been raised or conditioned to to perceive what Jesus was about. Because many people would answer that question and be like, well, okay, what, what is Jesus known for? He's known for like the golden rule. That's a famous one, like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, he's not the only religious teacher who said that, but he's kind of the one who's most famous for that well-known phrase. Maybe think, uh, I might hear him say something like, love your neighbor as yourself, or the more radical version, which is love your enemy, bless people who hate you. You might think that you would hear him telling stories, right? He's a brilliant storyteller. You might hear him tell stories about mustard seeds or or birds or sheep or something like that, right? But it's worth asking the question, what do you hear him talking about? If you had to summarize everything Jesus ever said in one sentence, how would you do it? And you're off the hook. You don't have to try to come up with that sentence, but it's because Matthew has already done the hard work for you. We've already read it. Matthew has already given us the summary of everything Jesus said or did and what he was about. It was in verse 17, which is repent, which is the word metanoia. It means surrender. It means decide to turn from a closed self-trust and turn toward a new open future of obedient trust and commitment to now live for God and his purposes. In this context, it means something big is happening that's going to force you to make a decision. It's going to force you to reevaluate everything you thought you knew about the world and about yourself and about God. And it will force a radical reorganization of your priorities and values. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Of the... 30 or so, depending on the font size, pages of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven nearly 50 times. Like, this is what Jesus talked about all the time. This is what he was about. Like, loving, loving people who hate you, loving your enemy, saying, on, saying a blessing on people who persecute you, that is actually fairly poor advice if some other things aren't also true. At the same time, are you with me? It's actually a kind of ridiculous way to behave unless something has happened in the world that makes that the only logical response. And what is the thing that happened that makes loving your enemy a sensible thing to do? Is that the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of God arriving maybe isn't the first thing that kind of comes to your minds when we think of Jesus, but this is the thing that Jesus lived and breathed. The thing he talked about more than anything else. And it's the, it's the main heartbeat of his mission and his message. And everything else flowed out from the fact that he was bringing into reality the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. Which just begs the question, what on earth is the kingdom? The kingdom of God. What does it mean for a, a Jewish prophet to go around this region of Galilee 2,000 years ago saying the kingdom of heaven is near 
Well, if you're a, you're a Jewish fisherman or fisherwoman, then you, you grew up on the poetry of the prophets and of the, the Psalms and the stories of the Hebrew Bible. We talked about last week, you, you memorized a lot of them. And this phrase would have been extremely meaningful to you. It has everything to do with your life and those, those Romans marching around the lake and your uncle who is a slave on his own land. So to ask what the kingdom of God or, or the kingdom of heaven is about, what it means for it to come, we, we really have to look at the whole storyline of the Bible. So what, what is that story? Here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to take a little tour to a couple moments in the storyline of the scriptures, okay? And then we're going to come back and read Matthew 4 again, okay? So first stop of the tour. And this is good. This might be helpful for some of you. Some of you are going to be at a get-together soon, and you're going to need some conversation starters. Um, and maybe what you don't know is that I'm like a natural conversationalist, okay? So let me... I'm not. I'm just kidding. Let me help you out with that. Bible trivia, Okay? Bible trivia. It's a great way to ostracize yourself in a room. Nonetheless, this is a fun fact. Where does the concept of the kingdom first show up in the Bible? Any guesses? Genesis. Okay. What page? Where in Genesis? Do you know? 120? Page 1 or 2, depending on the size of the font. Genesis chapter 1. The first story of the Bible depicts God as an artist as a creative, wise being who's powerful enough to speak a world of order and beauty and a garden into existence out of a dark, watery chaos that the story begins with. And then what God wants to do, even though he is, he's clearly the author and the king of the whole thing, what he wants to do is share ownership of this incredibly beautiful, complex world that he's designed. God's fundamentally a sharer. And that's a whole other sermon, but that is a clear takeaway from the stories on page one of the Bible. And who are the unique creatures that get installed as the co-rulers over this amazing world he created? Humans. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature the moves on the ground. So here on earth, there's something unique about the human role in the story of our world. And that is, humans have this responsibility to steward or rule over the world on God's behalf. Now, ruling might seem like kind of an odd way to talk about it, but ruling is kingdom language. That's the language of kings and queens, right? So what are we talking about? We're talking about human beings We do not just inhabit this world of awesome potential and resources. We actually remake it everywhere we go. This is a very unique capacity of the human species that comes with great responsibility and a divine calling. We are royal stewards of God's good world. God owns it, and we rule it on his behalf. And so the story of the Bible begins as a story about kingdoms. It's a story about God as the king, but he installs humans as as rulers who will rule the world on God's behalf. They'll take all of its raw potential and make something of it. But that calling is going to require humanity to make decisions, really, really significant decisions about what's good, what's not good, about good and evil. And that brings us to a tree of good and evil. And so this, it's this choice. 
Are human beings going to allow God to be the one who defines good and evil and rely on that as we rule the world? Or are humans going to seize the opportunity, seize autonomy, and define the knowledge of good and evil on their own terms? So how's the story go? Of course, we know humans start in alternate kingdom. It's a hostile takeover. It's like the shift manager thinks they become the owner, right? And they take over the bakery or whatever. Then they, this takeover, they, and they begin this alternate kingdom. And this is the basic plot conflict of the whole Bible. Jesus has a term for this age of the, of the human corrupt kingdom. He calls it the age of this world. Paul calls it the age of sin and death. Goes by all these different names in the Bible, but it's the realm after the hostile takeover. And so the whole plot conflict of the Bible is, what's God going to do about this hostile takeover? And what he does is, he sets in motion a plan to reassert his kingdom. To reassert his rule over the kingdoms of the world. And the first way God does this is, he singles out one family. He's going to form them into a new, as a new people, a kingdom community. And reveal to them what it means to truly become human in a way that doesn't redefine good and evil on our own terms, but according to God's wisdom. And who's the head patriarch and matriarch of this new family? Abraham and Sarah. And they're to train their family in the ways of the Lord, the the values of the kingdom, this alternate kingdom. And so God begins to form this this family, this kingdom, this alternate kingdom. But then here's what happens. This is the, the next part of our tour. The family gets really big, and they end up in slavery to one of the biggest, baddest kingdoms of this world that, you'll ever, that you've ever seen in the story so far. Egypt, who's led by Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is this larger-than-life guy in this story. He represents everything that's wrong with the human kingdom. And so he's a power-hungry, murderous king. He redefined good and evil so much that killing babies in the name of building huge storehouses is good instead of evil. And so he's grinding the family of Abraham into the dust through slavery. So what does God do? God reasserts his kingdom over Pharaoh. He raises up a deliverer, Moses, and he confronts Pharaoh and he says, you you can't do this in God's world. You need to humble yourself, and you need to set these people free. And Pharaoh's like, you don't know me. Like, actually, what he says is, I don't know you. God of Israel, who? Why should I care? I call the shots around here. And so he takes off the, the gloves. And so does God. And the story is really, really intense, and it's intense because it's the conflict of the kingdoms. Conflict of the kingdom of God and the hostile human takeover kingdoms. And who wins this conflict? God. Pharaoh is so intoxicated by his own power and prestige, he destroys himself in an effort to win. And so he's crushed in the waters of the sea, and the slaves are liberated and freed. Um, They pass through the sea on dry land, and they sing the first worship song in the Bible. It's called the Song of the Sea in Jewish tradition. And here's the opening lines, and and then the very last line of the poem from Exodus chapter 15. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. 
Both horse and driver have been hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. That's the opening paragraph of the poem. And the last line of the poem is, Lord reigns as king forever and ever. The point is, God has reasserted his reign by forming a counterculture, a people of God. And he confronted evil and its destructive effects on people. He liberated them and and invites them to live under his reign and his rule. What does it mean that God's kingdom has come near? It means that the king is forming a new people, liberating them from the kingdoms of this world. This is what it means for God to become king. When God becomes king, people are rescued. Evil is named and confronted and dealt with. This is why all you Jewish fisher people, um, you live and breathe these poems, these stories. Now, last step on the tour, God invites the Israelites to come to a mountain where they enter a covenant relationship. And the terms of the covenant of this relationship are very clear. They start with Ten Commandments. And then come 603 more, which is a lot, right? But again, what God is trying to make very clear is what it looks like for this ancient Israelite tribal community, farming community, to live as an alternate kingdom in this world. And so, that, so, so that's what all these ancient laws in the Bible are designed to do for Israel. If you do this, we'll be faithful to the covenant. And you'll be like a city on a hill as the prophet Isaiah said. How did Israel do? Not great. Essentially, the people that God rescued out from under Pharaoh's slavery become like Pharaoh, right? The kings and queens of Israel become little lesser versions of Pharaoh, little mini-Pharaohs. And they drive the family that God has formed right into the ground, and they're, they're taken off into exile in Babylon. And so now what's God going to do? The people that he rescued to form a new people, they don't want to live under his reign. So who wants to live under God's reign? How's God going to assert his kingdom? This is the story of the Old Testament. And the question left by the Old Testament is, how's God going to come and fix this? As fisher people, you are watching and you're waiting. You know the scripture in Isaiah that says, how beautiful on the, on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voices of your watchmen, they lift up their voices, shouting for joy together. For every eye will see when the Lord returns to Zion. Be joyful, rejoice together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has displayed his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. All the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. So you live by this hope if you're a Jewish fisher person. And the moment you come to that crowded synagogue in Galilee and you hear Jesus start talking about how the kingdom of God has come near, oh man, here we go. It's happening. This is electric. It's controversial. Jesus didn't get crucified for telling people to love each other. Like, do to others what, how you'd want, you know, as you'd want them to do to you. Kill the man. 
No, Jesus didn't get publicly executed by the Romans for being a moral teacher, which is what the culture insists on reducing Jesus to, to simply being a, an important moral teacher in the history of religions. No, this is not how Jesus presented himself or talked about himself or what he was doing. He presented himself as being the one who was reasserting God's rule over the nations and over the people of Israel. This is what Jesus gets crucified for. For claiming to be the king of his people and the king of the nations. That's exactly what Jesus is claiming. This is, this is loaded. This is loaded politically. This is loaded sociologically. It's loaded in every way you can imagine. And Jesus is touring around the towns of Galilee to form the people of this new kingdom. How's he do it? He takes a walk around the lake. It's such a wonderful, perfect, biblical storytelling style. Where it's like this cosmic drama. Which kingdom will conquer? Does he go to Jerusalem and start brokering with the leaders and the chief priests? Is that how he brings the kingdom? No, he takes a walk around a lake. He runs into some fishermen. And how does he present himself to them? I mean, he walks up to them. He just says, you guys, follow me. The first two, they, they just leave. And Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. The second pair, who are they with in the boat? Their dad, right? This is like the family business in the family boat. And King Jesus waltzes onto the scene and says, follow me. And he forces a decision. There's something in the moment happening that forces them to have a radical reorganization of all the priorities of everything they thought they knew about their identity. And the story that they were living. And and in in their values. And what was most important in their life. All of that gets challenged by Jesus. And I I think the story of Jesus also forces us to ask, okay, what does it mean for this man to go around saying that he's king? What does it actually mean to live under this king's reign? What does it look like when Jesus takes over the world? Matthew's going to tell us what it looks like when Jesus starts taking back the world. It looks like Jesus going around, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Teaching and proclaiming. So the kingdom that Jesus brings is so opposite of what everybody believes or how anybody lives that it requires a lot of explanation and teaching, right? You see Jesus constantly having to explain that his kingdom doesn't operate like other kingdoms. The next three chapters of the Gospel of Matthew explains what it means to live under the reign of King Jesus. And everything Jesus is going to say about his kingdom is counterintuitive. He's going to say things like, those of you who think that you're, they're important and you think they have the most to offer, you're actually definitely the least important. And the most important of the bunch, uh, those of you who have the least to offer, you're the least important, the most shamed among you, among you those are the people that I'm going to use. Jesus says, in the kingdom to be great, I serve others. I look out for their best interests, even if it's at the expense of my own. It's the first or last, the last or first. Jesus says, in the kingdom, I'm, I'm set free from the pursuit of hierarchy and positioning. I can lower myself and serve all. I've been freed in a, in a materialistic sense, which means I'm not defined by my shoes. 
not defined by what I, where I live or what I drive. I don't have to gather trinket after trinket to fill some void in my life. But instead, I've been set free to give whatever I have away for the good of the kingdom. Any power, any authority, anything I have is not given to me to lord it over anyone, but so that I might serve others. That's the coming of the kingdom. It's just this complete upending of our views of power and status, value, significance. C.S. Lewis on the last page of Mere Christianity talks about the values and principles of the kingdom of God. He says, give up yourself. You will find your real self. Use your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have ever given away will be really yours. Sorry, nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you'll find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. I mean, you watch Jesus. and He had this effect on people, story after story. No one walked away from Jesus unchanged. And Jesus, he's going to force every single one of us to deal with the core issues, the the darkest parts of our character. Because Jesus is convinced that the, the healing of the human race has to do with facing the dark that we've all given into and the lies that we've bought into about what's most important and our identity and what it means to be significant in the world and what it means to bring all this to Jesus. And allow his mercy, allow his love, his wisdom to redefine reality for me as I live under his reign, as I live in the kingdom of God. When Jesus asserts his reign and rule over the world, it looks like healing. You see over and over again these stories of Jesus encountering someone who's extremely vulnerable. They're sick, their bodies are given out. People who are publicly shamed by what's happening with their bodies or what's happening in their stories. And these are the people that King Jesus moves towards. This is Jesus embodying his idea that in his kingdom, what it looks like for the King Jesus to become king is to confront the effects of evil. Nobody walks away from their encounters with Jesus unchanged. And so this is is what it means for Jesus to become king of the world. It is heart, mind, and body transformation. These stories that we read about Jesus are not designed to tell us something interesting that happened 2,000 years ago. These, story, these stories are designed to bring you into a living encounter with the same Jesus who called those fishermen by the lake. In the same way that he waltzed right into their lives and summoned them to follow him, and that summons was actually the best news that they could have ever heard, in the same way we believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, that he's alive and he's real, and that he's still calling to people. and still inviting people right now to live under his reign, to be disciples of him, to reorganize our life around the values of the kingdom of God. So that's where we're going to be going. I'm going to put the values up on the screen. You want to put up the next one? Um, These are where we're going to focus our energy for the next few months. And after that too, but 
treasuring his presence, pursuing healthy relationships, knowing our greatness, owning a supernatural lifestyle, accessing abundant wholeness, and living the gospel. Uh, We're going to start into the values two weeks from now. Next week, we'll have a special speaker, Karen Hawkins. Uh, For those of you who don't know Karen, she was part of the upper room early in in the early years. She's now a full-time missionary in Oregon. Uh, She'll be sharing with us next week. Then the week after, we're going to jump into treasuring his presence. I'm excited. I hope you are too. Uh, If the ministry team wants to come on up, you know, in in the coming months, we are going to talk about some challenging things. And I would, I would encourage you to begin preparing your heart now. Maybe today that means getting prayed for. Uh, the ministry team will be up here if anyone would like to be ministered to, okay? Let me pray for us, okay? Father, I thank you for these men and women. I do thank you that the kingdom is here. And we're, that we're not looking for some far-off hope that has, been, that has not been fulfilled, but we're, we can walk in the hope of the kingdom of God. We just thank you for the greatness of your kingdom. Lord, prepare us, prepare our minds and our hearts to be open to what you you show us through your Holy Spirit in the coming months. It's in your name that we pray. Everybody said, Amen. Amen.